He took to the stage for a two-hour speech, which many say sets the stage for his big return. At the exact same spot where he launched his presidential bid back in 2002, Brazil's former leader, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, took aim at the policies and the COVID-19 response of Jair Bolsonaro, the man he's rumoured to be eager to unseat. Este país não tem Este país não cuida da economia. Este país não cuida do emprego. Este país não cuida do salário. Este país não cuida da saúde. This was Lula's first address since a judge at this building, the Supreme Court in Brasilia, quashed his corruption convictions earlier this week. Lula's supporters were out to trumpet his innocence, but the current president said the court should rethink its decision, adding that the leftist administration was nothing other than a catastrophe. The case against Lula was dismissed on a technicality, meaning that he can run for office now once again, should he wish to. Some, though, are already looking into Brazil's political crystal ball. A new opinion poll suggests that Lula and his arch-rival Bolsonaro would have the support needed to reach a second-round face-off at next year's ballot. All right, I'm now joined by Glenn Greenwald, uh, who is the author of Securing Democracy, My Fight for Press Freedom and Justice in Bolsonaro's Brazil. Thank you for coming out, Glenn. Hey, thanks for inviting me back, Ben. It's great to be with you. Yeah, so I was hoping uh, that you could, you know, so I've been reading your book, uh, which is extremely interesting, and I was, I was hoping that uh, we could start out with, with a little bit of... Um, you know, of background of, of the kind that you give in the book about, um, you know, Brazil's history and in particular what it is about Lula da Silva, who is, who is not like a uh, revolutionary communist or anything by any means, you know, who is, who is like a center left, you know, kind of social democratic president uh, that outraged both the, uh, the Brazilian right and, uh, and the United States enough to explain everything that happened since. Sure. So first of all, Brazil is an incredibly important country geopolitically. It's the sixth largest country in the world from the perspective of population. It's almost as large physically as the United States. It's the second largest country in the hemisphere, which makes it of great importance to the United States, which continues to embrace the Monroe Doctrine that says that it and it alone has the right to interfere in its backyard, which is how it thinks about Latin America. And the history of Brazil is crucial for understanding both Lula and Bolsonaro in the current moment, um, in part because Brazil was the last country to eliminate slavery, which means that it was 1888, thereabouts. Um, and, you know, I mentioned in the book that there are these two kind of phrases, catchphrases that capture the essence of Brazil, both sides. One is God is Brazilian, which is intended to signify that it's a country that is endowed with extraordinary resources, natural resources, beauty, physical beauty, the beauty of its people, the uniqueness of its culture. But then the other one is God, Brazil is always the country of the future, meaning people have always said, oh, Brazil's moment is arriving and yet it never seems to arrive. So its potential has never been able to 
be fulfilled. And a big reason for that is because of this immense, immense wealth inequality and income inequality that makes the U.S. look almost socialist by comparison. And so the most important historical event to know about Brazil is that in 1963, it had a center-left government that was a burgeoning democracy. It was steadfastly neutral in the Cold War between Moscow and, and Washington. Um, but it really wasn't good enough for the Kennedy administration and then for the Johnson administration. They perceived that the center-left government was becoming too socialist just because of some land reforms, um, some nationalization of, uh, of private assets, um, and first threatened the Brazilian government to stop. And when the president, the elected president didn't, it, it conspired with Brazilian generals to overthrow that government within a day, threatened them and troops marched on the presidential palace. He, he fled to uh, Uruguay. And for the next 21 years, a military dictatorship, very vicious and brutal and savage, ruled Brazil by, you know, ushering standard in, standard dictatorship uh, orders, uh, killing dissidents, imprisoning journalists, exiling artists, the whole litany of standard dictatorial attributes. And, and so Brazil finally redemocratized in 1985 because of popular protest. And Lula was always this kind of gigantic figure from redemocratization. He was somebody who was the kind of person who never wields power in Brazil. He was the seventh of eight, eight children. He was illiterate until he was 10 years old. Um, he worked in a factory and lost his, a finger, his, his pinky finger, um, on his left hand and became this labor leader, you know, this extremely charismatic labor leader formed the workers party and ran for Congress, got a huge vote, was in Congress, and then three times ran for president and almost won, but each time lost to a kind of center-right neoliberal establishment figure because of this perception that they were deliberately cultivating that he was too far leftist, that he was more like Chavez or Castro or these old style communists and that that would scare away international capital and would crush civil liberties. And so finally in 2002, his fourth time running, he got tired of losing. He made a lot of compromises to kind of the bourgeois class and the oligarchical class. He chose as his vice president, this businessman, multimillionaire textile owner who was very uh, friendly with the banks. Um, and his presidency was this immense success. He governed from 2002 got reelected overwhelmingly in 2006 and then left office in 2010 with an 87% approval rating, 87% approval rating in a democratic country. It's almost unheard of. Brazil's economy grew massively. The rich did well, but he also lifted millions and millions of people out of poverty. That was when Brazil got the Olympics and the World Cup, the first South American country ever to get the Olympics um, and to host the World Cup. So it was really looked like Brazil's you know, fulfillment potential was finally being fulfilled. And then his handpicked successor was Dilma Rousseff. I do want to talk about Dilma, but, uh, but I, I do want to just like back up a little bit because, um, you know, because just to, uh, just to underline, you know, the, the point, you know, about how, uh, you know, about how Lula was actually governed in as, as a fairly, you know, incremental, you know, kind of, uh, kind of left reformist, um, you know your uh, your husband, David Miranda, uh, is a congressman. is is a member of a party that's uh, uh, to the left of uh, of Lula and Dilma, Dilma's party. Yeah, it's a it's an important point. You know, um, just as 
kind of the oligarchical class in Brazil and international capital feared that Lula was going to be far left and was relieved that he wasn't. Obviously, the actual left in Brazil was disappointed. They too thought he would be and wasn't. And so a component of his workers' party broke off, in part because there were corruption scandals, but more so because of this kind of these neoliberal concessions that he was making. And there were several parties. The largest one is my husband's party, which is a, a socialist party. Um, and, and that was the interesting thing about Lula was he always said, you know, he wrote a letter, a famous letter to the Brazilian people in 2002, basically promising, look, I'm not a communist. I'm not like Castro. I'm not like Chavez. I believe in civil liberties. I believe that um, the market needs to be used to help the poor. And whether politically as a strategy or out of conviction, that is how he governed. The rich did very well under Lula, but so did the poor. Everybody did well, which is how you leave office with an 87% approval rating with the approval of the World Bank and The Economist and you know, sort of the entire world economic order. So it was really an extraordinary presidency in its ability to kind of check all the boxes. But you're right, the left was not so enamored of yeah, yeah, which which I think I think might be an important point to make, just because it's uh, just because I think it maybe underscores what if you are in you know what American politicians sometimes call America's backyard, uh, and and also you know you're in this this country that of course has this very powerful you know and 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 vicious you know domestic right wing oligarchy, uh, how little it can take uh, to infuriate those forces. Uh, so, so can you give us like a little bit of a sense of the the kind of of policies that Lula was was implementing that um, that had these effects of poverty reduction and everything you're talking about? Sure. So, one of the kind of iconic programs, anti-poverty programs, that to this day is held up as a model by institutions like the World Bank and the IMF and the Economist magazine, you know, those kind of organs, um, is called Bolsa Familia, which, uh, means essentially family purse in English. It's not a great translation. And the idea of it is they, the government pays single mothers a monthly payment for raising their children. And in exchange, what's required is that she show proof of vaccination, healthcare and school attendance. So it's basically a contract between the government and citizens in need where the government provides sustenance. Um, and then at the same time, the parents have a responsibility to show that they're parenting in a way that will make the children on the right path constructively for the society. Um, he, you know, created all kinds of programs to enable people who never dreamt of being able to send their kids to go to college of having huge scholarships. It really created for the first time ever, a middle class in Brazil, which never existed. Um, you know, and it's really interesting. I asked uh, when I, I interviewed Lula twice, the last time was in 2019 when he was still in prison and he was, you know, kept saying I'm in prison because I was going to run for president again, which we'll get to. And the rich people and the elites didn't want me to. And that's why I'm here. And I asked him, I said, but you know, that makes no sense to me. The rich did really well under your presidency. They got richer. Why are they so, why would they be right. so opposed to your coming back? And he said, it's not economics that is driving their resentment. It's culture that they would go to the airports and for the first time, see a bunch of people who lived in the favela being able to fly. And they would start saying, wow, our airports now look like bus stations, or they would go to their shopping malls and have to see black people and poor people who they had never seen before now able to 
kind of, you know, have consumer power. And it was really a cultural resentment that he said is driving the animus toward him as opposed to purely an economic one. Uh, eu sabia que estava sendo jogado um jogo. E eu sabia que o jogo era evitar que o Lula pudesse disputar as eleições. Por quê? Porque era tudo que a elite brasileira não queria era que o Lula voltasse a ser presidente da república. Por quê? Se eles ganharam muito dinheiro no meu governo. Se eles ficaram mais ricos no meu governo. Mas não, foi, mas não era verdade que, por exemplo, o lucro dos, dos bancos explodiu durante sua presidência? Eu não sei se explodiu, mas cresceu bem. Cresceu muito, não? Mas a verdade, a verdade é que as pessoas mais pobres subiram um degrau Também. na escala social. E na medida que os mais pobres começaram a entrar em universidade, na medida que começaram a frequentar teatro, na medida que começaram a frequentar restaurante, na medida que começaram a fre frequentar aeroporto, isso começou a incomodar uma parte da elite brasileira. Mas, presidente, a situação da classe mais rica melhorou bastante também durante seu governo. Então, por que você acredita que essa classe que melhorou muito, que recebeu muito lucro durante seu governo, é contra seu voto? É que volta? não é só uma questão econômica, é uma questão cultural. É importante lembrar que esse país faz pouco mais de 100 anos que acabou com a escravidão na lei, mas a escravidão continua na cabeça das pessoas. É por isso que quem é vitimado Sabe, pela polícia, são os, mais, os negros mais pobres. É por isso que os negros ganham metade do branco. É por isso que a mulher negra ganha menos que a mulher branca. É por isso que é o negro que tem menos escolaridade. Por quê? Porque você tem na consciência das pessoas o escravismo ainda preponderante. É uma coisa grave, mas ela é verdadeira. Isso não termina logo. Então, o que eu acho é que não é uma questão econômica, é uma questão cultural, é uma questão política, é uma questão sociológica. Mas vamos falar sobre essas questões. Yeah, and and I think also on uh, on the U.S. side, I mean, somewhat like the uh, the the coup in the uh, the '60s you referred to earlier, uh, it seems like uh, part of what Lula did that incited the anger of uh, the United States was just you know, being too independent in his foreign policy. Yeah, that's, it's an important point. First of all, I think we have to, you know, point out that Brazil obviously has the Amazon, which is an incredibly important asset for the earth, both environmentally, but also in terms of how it can be exploited. But it also has enormous petroleum reserves and specifically what are called pre-salt petroleum reserves that are older and more difficult to extract. But enormous volume at a time when the world's oil reserves are being depleted. And Petrobras was, you know, one of the targets of NSA spying, as we reported during Snowden. So the U.S. has a big interest in Brazil and always has. And one of the things that Lula did that really angered the United States more than anything was it wasn't so much the domestic reforms, which they could live with. It was, as you said, foreign policy. And in particular, at a time when the Obama administration was trying very hard to isolate Iran and was trying to negotiate a very aggressive deal with Iran, Lula and uh, Erdogan of Turkey were concerned that this is going to lead to war. And so they went off on their own. Um, and you see the picture there uh, with Ahmadinejad and, and created their own agreement to kind of 
reintegrate Iran back into the international order in a way that the United States was utterly opposed to. And you can go find columns from like Tom Friedman and David Ignatius and all their like, you know, foreign policy community uh, sources, CIA sources who are, I mean, savaging Lula as some kind of monster because he had the audacity to forge an independent foreign policy that was contrary to what the U.S. was ordering. It was a real clarifying moment for me to see that. Um, so I wouldn't say that the U.S. under Obama hated Lula, um, but definitely for the foreign policy community, they started realizing that we cannot afford an independent themselves too far away from our sphere of influence because Brazil is by far the most influential country in that region. Yeah. So, uh, although actually, uh, Obama famously in, in his memoir does, uh, does slam Lula a couple times. I think he refers to him as being like a Tammany hall boss, uh, which of course gets us into the, the meat of the book, but first, uh, yeah, we should talk about, uh, Lula's successor, uh, Dilma Rousseff and then, uh, and then, uh, how, the right in Brazil managed to remove her from office? Yeah, so, you know, Dilma's a fascinating story. When she was 23, she actually picked up arms and became part of the armed resistance against the military dictatorship. She was a Marxist guerrilla, and she hadn't killed anyone or engaged in any violence, but just being part of the resistance meant that she was in danger, and one day she was kind of abducted by one of the darker parts of the military regime, and detained for two years and brutally tortured to turn over information about her comrades and the resistance movement. Um, so the idea that, you know, 30 years later or 25 years later, she would become the elected president of a very patriarchal country was all obviously unthinkable. And it was really Lula, especially because Dilma was never, is not really a classic politician. She's not particularly charismatic. She doesn't, you know, she doesn't make people feel warm in her, you know, it's a, it's an interesting conflict that a lot of female politicians have. They have to show strength, but that can be alienating. Um, you know, I think Hillary Clinton had a lot of the same issues, but she was this very efficient technocrat, very competent, smart, and efficient. So Lula anointed her and she won easily in 2010, but in her first term, the economic crisis of Wall Street in 2008 started really reverberating in Brazil, causing a lot of economic problems. That in turn caused problems of crime, of unemployment. And then at the same time, this huge corruption scandal in 2014 erupted with Petrobras at the center of it. And she had been the chair of Petrobras under Lula's administration. And so she kind of became at the center of it. And so in 2014, they thought they were finally going to be able to beat the Workers' Party after losing three times in a row, 2006, 2002, 2006, and, and 10. They kind of had this uh, neoliberal kind of senator that they came from a big, famous Brazilian family. And they almost won, but they barely lost. It was like 51 to 48. She was reelected. But the problems got worse. They never The right never accepted that defeat. And so in 2016, about 18 months after she was elected, they impeached her on completely frivolous grounds. That was when I started The Intercept Brazil um, because I was so vehemently opposed to that impeachment. I could see it was the first kind of unraveling of Brazilian democracy. They were just intent on imposing on the government and on the country. Her center-right vice president, who was from a different party, that's how you know multi-party coalitions work, and they wanted, he was just a 75-year-old 
gray lawyer who never could have won. People didn't even know him, but he was at the end of his career. And he's like, I'll impose all the austerity that you want. And they, they did it. They impeached her, imposed him. And so for me, that was really the start of the unraveling of democracy that set the stage for Bolsonaro. Se, se o senhor é impedido no Senado, pode pedir para o Supremo rejeitar ou definir-se como ter um crime de responsabilidade e também o Supremo poderia parar o processo, mas até agora o Supremo não fez. É possível que o processo que está sendo conduzido sob autoridade, um, um tribunal legítimo, pode ser um golpe? Veja bem. São duas coisas completamente diferentes. O processo, pela lei brasileira, transcorre no Senado. Eu posso recorrer ao Supremo Tribunal e o farei quando for adequado para a minha defesa. Mas, no ínterim, ele correrá no Tribunal. Ele irá transcorrer dentro do Senado. O Senado é o Tribunal correto. A partir daí, o que eu posso fazer é discutir se, vamos dizer, os procedimentos foram corretamente levantados, foram corretamente aceitos, nos deram ampla direito de defesa, nos deram, não houve nenhuma, nenhuma, vamos dizer assim, nenhuma interrupção no processo. Nós estamos recorrendo disso. Nós não conseguimos eliminar, mas as ações estão no Supremo e serão, obviamente, levadas ao pleno do Supremo. O, o juiz, individualmente, ele não deu ainda, é, ele não aceitou dar a suspensão do processo. Agora, ele de, eles terão de julgar. Mas vai ter uma oportunidade para pedir que o, o Supremo definir se cometeu o crime depois. Depois. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, so what's the like like what you're you're talking about with you know with with Dilma in uh, in that that clip is uh, is the you know the way that uh, that this this could be considered sort of a lawfare coup you know that they were they were using like transparently uh, absurd grounds to, uh, to to impeach her it was like basically like a sort of accounting you know method that you know that was that was commonly used. That you know that they they were uh, that was you know like it was so it was, it was treated as if as some sort of um, you know like uh, you know like nobody really took seriously I think the idea that this was a, a politically neutral application of the law at the uh, at the time and in fact I believe uh, Jair Bolsonaro then then still in uh, in Congress. Uh, Uh, dedicated his uh, his vote to impeach her uh, to uh, to the like the commandant at the uh, prison who tortured her. Yeah, you know that in, I haven't seen that interview in a while. It's really interesting um, having watched it just now and and remembering that was the first interview she gave after the lower house had voted to impeach her. So just like in the U.S., the same system: the house impeaches, the Senate then has a trial and convicts or acquits. And that day that the House impeached her, it was an overwhelming vote to impeach her. It was one of the ugliest things I've ever seen. It lasted about nine hours. And, you know, the fraud of it was that the, the most corrupt gangsters in the world were the ones who led the process against her. The guy who was the president of the House, who okayed and gave the green light, is now in prison for 15 years. He had millions and millions of dollars in Swiss bank accounts from bribes, and everybody knew it at the time. It was very... Uh, misogynistic too. You know, it was all these men who were just like 
reactionary and conservative standing up saying re revolting things about her. Both Bolsonaro and his son, Eduardo, who's also a member of Congress, dedicated their yes vote to the torturers who had actually tortured her. Nesse dia de glória para o povo brasileiro, tem um nome que entrará para a história nessa data, pela forma como conduziu os trabalhos da casa. Parabéns, presidente Eduardo Cunha. Perderam em 64. Perderam agora em 2016. Pela família e pela inocência das crianças em sala de aula que o PT nunca teve. Contra o comunismo, pela nossa liberdade. Contra o Foro de São Paulo, pela memória do coronel Carlos Alberto Brilhante Ustra, o pavor de Dilma Rousseff. Como vota, deputado? Pelo exército de Caxias, Como vota, pelas nossas forças armadas. Por um Brasil acima de tudo e por Deus acima de todos, o meu voto é sim. So I think that in that interview, she still didn't believe really the reality of what was happening. I mean, by this point, there had already been leaks from key members of the Senate in the, in the, in the center right party where they were saying on tape, impeachment is a done deal. It's an agreement between, it's a national pact between the military, the Supreme court, you know, all parties that we need to have on board. And you can see she's still trying to believe in the like legal process saying, no, I think I, you know, the legal process is being followed. Whereas all her followers knew, and I think she knew deep down that this was an absolutely, you know, coordinated effort to finally do what they couldn't do for 16 years, which was destroy the Workers' Party, remove them from power. And of course, the Senate did end up convicting her. Um, the leader of the Senate impeachment effort was the guy she ran against and defeated. And he ultimately ended up getting caught on tape, plotting to murder his own cousin as a witness to his corruption. Um, and the vice president also got caught on tape once he became president, plotting to, uh, pay bribes to the guy who was leading the impeachment effort. So the whole thing was, you know, done by the most grotesque corrupt gangsters. And yet it was really the corporate media led by Globo that had been against the workers party forever that spun this narrative that this accounting method she had used that is used by leaders all over the world and that is trivial at best as a transgression was some kind of grave, you know, act of corruption, defrauding the Brazilian people. And that's why support for impeachment rose to the level where they could get away with doing it. Yeah. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned Globo because this, this gets us into uh, to something that's, that's a big part of the book, uh, which is that, you know, like they had like, you know, Globo liked you when you were, you know, we're exposing the NSA, you know, uh, you know, spying on uh, on Brazil, uh, you know, but um, but they, uh, they they turned pretty hard uh, over originally uh, the the Dilma impeachment and then you know, sort of adversarial relationship with a lot of the Brazilian you know press comes up a lot in the book. Yeah, I mean, so two things, you know, one is the impeachment was supported almost unanimously by the four or five largest Brazilian media outlets. And Brazil has notorious media uh, outlets are concentrated in the hands of like three or four oligarchical families. That has always been a huge problem hovering over Brazil, but the worst is Globo. Globo, for example, 
became Globo, the Mourinho family that owns it, are three sons who are each billionaires. Their father became one of the richest men on earth by serving the military dictatorship. When there was a military coup in 1964, Globo had a headline depicting it as a revolution against communist tyranny. And he then became kind of the spokesman for the dictatorship. Brazil, Globo apologized for this in 2013. So like decades later, once that guy was long dead, but they have always been at the center of everything there. There, there's no other country where there's a media outlet that powerful a country the size of Brazil that dominates so much like Globo does. And so, yeah, I did my NSA reporting in Brazil with Globo precisely because of their dominance. And I had a great relationship with them, but not, it wasn't just impeachment that they were behind and really responsible for. And I became one of the leading voices because we established the intercept, intercept Brazil to oppose, oppose impeachment. But also it was this anti-corruption probe led by Sergio Moro, who became Bolsonaro's uh, minister of justice and security and it was kind of a weapon from the beginning aimed at the Workers' Party. And it was Globo and the Brazilian press that turned Sergio Moro into this Superman, you know, this kind of high priest of ethics. They put him on every magazine cover. They turned him into like a religious figure that no one could question. And so it wasn't just my opposition to the Dilma's impeachment that caused a lot of animosity with the Brazilian press, but particularly my growing criticisms of how this anti-corruption probe was being conducted, particularly led by Sergio Moro. So it, 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 you really can't talk about Brazilian politics without talking about the central role of its concentrated media led by Globo. Yeah, uh, I, was, I was just smiling because I could hear, uh, hear one of your dogs barking in the background. Uh, and I, I remember, um, you know, takes me back to sitting in the uh, the, the studio where, where TMBS was recorded when uh, Michael was calling you up to uh, uh, interview you. And I think before you got started, I could hear like a bunch of them barking at the same time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. People complain if there's not a dog bark at some point in my interview. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I want to. Um, so so yeah, I want to get into uh, tomorrow and uh, and this is like this is kind of a remarkable thing you know that there's there's no like the status that he had uh you know basically before uh the uh, the leaks you know that, that you reported uh is kind is like there's there's not a lot like there's no obvious analogy you know for uh for a figure like this uh in any other country you know he was on the the time you know he's the only brazilian on the time magazines you know 100 most influential uh people in the world uh you you mentioned him uh you know, being sort of elevated to Superman. And he was like, there were literally images of him with like the Superman uh, outfit. Uh, and uh, he was such a, uh, you know, immensely uh, popular figure and and such a revered figure uh, that uh, when he joined uh, Bolsonaro's government, he, he was able to to negotiate this, this kind of astounding detail deal for himself. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the... The the iconography of Sergio Moro became so immense. You know, there were they're like in every city in, in Brazil, you could find gigantic, like life-size murals of him on the side of buildings. He you know really became a religious figure. And it wasn't, you know, entirely invalid. Um Brazil from the time of the dictatorship was run by systemic corruption and this guy came onto the scene. You, you can tell he's, you know, like his early forties and he led this team of prosecutors that were even younger in their thirties. And their argument was we're the first generation 
born into democracy. We're here to clean up our country. And for a while, there were even a lot of people on the left, I was one of them, who supported what they were doing because they were sending billionaires to prison for corruption. And as an American, yeah, right. <laughs> I never saw that before. You know, I lived through the 2008 financial crisis. I lived through the invasion of Iraq and torture and rendition and illegal spying. And I never saw any of them go to prison. So I thought, wow, this is important to see, you know, heirs of billionaire fortunes going to prison. O que nós percebemos é que a corrupção é um crime tão grave como o homicídio, pelo menos a grande corrupção. Parte maior da corrupção, os estudos da, da transparência internacional de outros órgãos apontam não é só no crescimento, é na distribuição de renda e na justiça social. Uma estimativa da ONU aponta que 200 bilhões de reais são desviados pela corrupção anualmente no Brasil. Com esse dinheiro, nós poderíamos triplicar o investimento federal em saúde ou em educação. Nós poderíamos ainda multiplicar por cinco tudo o que se investe em segurança pública no nosso país. Nós poderíamos ter por ano 10 escolas a mais em cada cidade brasileira. Em 97, a cada 100 casos de corrupção acabam em nada. A Lava Jato tem sido até agora um ponto fora dessa curva da impunidade. Todo esse caso é um triunfo institucional. Existem várias outras instituições trabalhando, existe o Ministério Público, existe a Polícia, a Receita Federal, outros órgãos têm colaborado. Até muito pouco tempo atrás não se via criminosos desse porte, políticos, senadores, pessoas assim que até pouco tempo viam a impunidade como um elemento principal da, da sua vida. Mas rapidamente at some point started abusing their power. Um, I think nobody can sustain that level of reverence. And it got to the point where they were, you know, it's not a good thing when the most politically popular figures in the country are not politically accountable. And they drove almost every single major political event, including impeachment, um, just through the stroke of a pen. Um, and, you know, it 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 really it, it's hard to overstate how, as you said, um, how popular and powerful of a figure he was to the point where even the Supreme Court, higher courts, Congress, the media were afraid to challenge him or oppose him because he had this huge army of Brazilians behind his back and they thought he was the savior of Brazil. So everyone was petrified to challenge him. And and so what happened was the key event for Moro was in 2017 after Dilma's impeachment. Lula had been term limited out of office in 2010. You can only serve two consecutive terms under the constitution, but you can run again. You just can't serve a third consecutive term. So everybody knew Lula was ready to run for president in 2018 once this vice president that they installed, you know, was gone in the 2018 election. And all polls showed him far ahead of every other uh, candidate, including Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro was sort of in second, but a very distant second to Lula. And so, the oligarch class said, wait a minute, we just went through all of this turmoil. We, we, we impeached Dilma. 
We installed this guy. We got everything we wanted finally. And now we're going to let Lula just waltz back into the presidency. So the prosecutors, this anti-corruption team, brought very dubious corruption charges against Lula in 2017 as he was getting ready to run. And they cheated. It shouldn't have been with Judge Morrow for te the technical reasons referred to in that video you first played. Um, but they knew that they needed to keep it with Judge Morrow because he was secretly plotting with them to make sure that they would quickly find Lula guilty and then have this appellate court that was very subservient to the whole corruption probe affirm the appeal. And then once that happens under Brazilian law, Lula became barred from running. And that's what they did. They found guilt, Lula guilty. Moro sentenced him to a decade in prison very quickly. Um, the appellate court very quickly affirmed it. He, they, The police came, they took him to prison, and he was barred from running. And that's what led the path to Bolsonaro eased, Bolsonaro's easy victory in 2018 because Moro had removed from Bolsonaro's path to power his greatest obstacle, which was Lula. And then the first thing, Ben, the first thing that Bolsonaro did upon winning was he turned around and he made Sergio Moro this offer to join his government, knowing that that would become a an anchor of legitimacy for his government was to have Sergio Moro join his new government as the minister of justice. And, you know, Bolsonaro ran ridiculously on an anti-corruption platform. I say ridiculously because he was a congressman from the epicenter of corruption in Rio de Janeiro for 30 years and was involved in every component of corrupt transactions, but that was his branding. And so to have Moro come and join his government was a huge coup. And Moro, Bolsonaro needed Moro more than Moro needed Bolsonaro. And so he was able to negotiate for this new position that was of unprecedented power where all these powers that had been previously dispersed throughout multiple agencies of surveillance, uh, monitoring of finances, law enforcement, the, the federal police were all consolidated under his control. And he agreed to accept the position only on that ground. And the media started calling him the super minister. And he easily became the second most pow powerful figure in the country, if not the most powerful, as soon as Bolsonaro's victory was sealed. Yeah. So I want to talk about what your, uh, you know, the leaks that you published uh, then, then showed uh, about Moro. Uh, but it is it is also worth you know worth mentioning since you were talking about you know the sort of ludicrously corrupt you know past of uh, of Bolsonaro uh, that you know that even beyond you know that sort of uh, financial corruption uh, that's 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 obvious enough that there's also some like really like um, horrifying stuff with like links to uh, to to like right wing paramilitary gangsters you know people who murdered Marielle Franco. Uh, you so uh, you know want to talk just a little bit about that? Yeah, so you know for a long time in Brazil, crime was talked about as being the responsibility of these like drug gangs and the favelas, and it made for a good story because they were largely black and poor, and so they kind of were menacing. And then you know maybe twenty thirty years ago, this kind of these kind of like consortiums of police officers and military officials, current and former, began creating their own vigilante gangs. And at first, the argument was, we're doing this to keep neighborhoods safe from these black drug lords. But they quickly, you know, turned into um, very violent and savage mafiosos that make the mafia, the actual mafia in Italy, look pacifistic by comparison. And it's now to the point where they dominate way more territory than those drug kingpins. They are responsible for far more 
violence. And Bolsonaro has always praised these militias as good as good citizens. Um, and one of the things important about Bolsonaro is that he has three sons, all of whom are political officials. His eldest one was a state legislature, state state legislator in Rio for 10 years and got elected to the federal Senate in 2018 when Bolsonaro was became president. Another son is a congressman. Another one is a member of the Rio de Janeiro City Council. And in 2018, Marielle Franco, as you mentioned, who was one of our uh, family's closest friends, she was this black LGBT woman from the favela who was elected with my husband in 2016 to the Rio de Janeiro City Council, the same socialist party. They sat side by side. In 2018, she had become this political icon, got a huge vote. She was coming home, being driven home after an event, and a car pulled alongside of her, and they opened the window, and they pumped 13 bullets into her car, four of which entered her skull and killed her immediately, and the other three bullets entered the back of her driver and killed him immediately. And the investigation revealed which militia, which paramilitary gang was responsible. And for the first time, they really investigated and got the, the identified the chief of this militia. There was a, a, a militia that specialized in assassinations and really expensive, but very well executed assassinations. They obviously had the knowledge of police officers and military officials about how to carry it out and evade police investigations. And it turned out, this was discovered right after Bolsonaro's victory, that the head of that militia that killed Marielle was a guy whose mother and daughter or wife rather, whose mother and wife worked for a decade in the cabinet of Bolsonaro's son, the one who had just become a senator when he was a state legislator. They were ghost jobs. Of course, they never showed up. They just kind of got the payments and all of these other connections between this militia that killed Marielle and the Bolsonaro family began to emerge such that to this very day, it's the number one scandal engulfing the entire Bolsonaro family. These, as you say, it's not just standard corruption. They also have, you know, all the standard corruption. His son just bought, you know, a multi-million dollar mansion, even though he's been in public life forever. They can never explain where their wealth comes from. Um, but it's, you know, if that's all it were, that would just be standard Brazilian corruption. But it's much darker and more menacing that they have such close and intertwining ties to these really barbaric, murderous paramilitary militias that increasingly rule Brazil as a parallel government. Yeah. Uh, so, and and of course, you know, when when Moro, you know, was was joining that, um, you know, was joining Bolsonaro's government, you know, he, as you say in the book, like at that time, you know, Bolsonaro, you know, for obvious reasons, right? Because because everybody, you know, sort of, um, you know, knew who he was, uh, but, you know, Moro seemed like super upstanding, you know, so, so, so Bolsonaro really at that stage needed Moro much more than, uh, than vice versa. Uh, and, uh, and he, and he was for a while, maybe able to, uh, to give, you know, lend some of his, uh, his credibility, but then these, these leaks, uh, that you published, uh, were really damning about, about a lot of people, but, you know, but Moro, you know, uh, most of all, so, so you want to talk a little bit about the, uh, you know, the, like, like what the, well, actually, uh, I want to be respectful of your time, but you know, just a little bit about how you, you know, like the process, and and then what the leaks themselves revealed. Yeah, and sure, we can. I mean, I'm not super pressed for time, so whatever you feel, you know, is a good amount of time. I'm happy to give you. Um, yeah, so it was uh, on Mother's Day in 2019. So May, I think it was 11, 2019. So just like four months after Bolsonaro was inaugurated, and not just Bolsonaro, but his entire 
far right party that didn't even exist barely before the 2018 election got swept into power with him. They became the second largest party in Congress, just one seat less than the Workers' Party. So this very far right movement took over Brazil under the leadership of somebody who has been saying for 30 years that they believe the military dictatorship is a superior form of government to Brazilian democracy, vowing to close the Congress and the courts. If he ever got reelected, saying the only thing, if he ever got elected president, saying the only thing the military dictatorship did wrong was that it didn't kill enough people. It tortured a lot, but didn't kill them after. So it was a very menacing time and people were afraid for obvious reasons. No one knew the path of Brazil and on Mother's Day, I got a call from uh, a woman named Manuela Davila, very famous politician, politician in Brazil. She's actually a member of the Brazilian Communist Party. Um, and she's been a congresswoman uh, in a state legislature with huge vote totals. She's very dynamic and young and popular. And she was the vice presidential candidate for the left-wing ticket that made the runoff against Bolsonaro and lost. And she called me and said, you know, I have to speak with you urgently. And she's a very serious woman. I... She, I knew she wasn't doing that for nothing. And so I got on the phone with her and also my husband. And she said uh, earlier that day, in fact, like an hour earlier, she had been hacked. Her phone had been hacked by a hacker who began talking to her from the phone of a senator. He had hacked the phone of the senator as well and pretended to be the senator for a while and then said, look, I have all your conversations that you've had with your closest colleagues, with senators, with governors with your friends, here they are. He showed it to her to prove to her that he had hacked her phone. And she obviously thought like, am I being blackmailed? And then he said, no, you're not my target. Um, I just am doing this to show you that I really am the real deal, that I have the capacity to invade anybody's Telegram account that I want. Telegram is the you know encrypted app that is most popular in Brazil. It's like Signal. Mm -hmm. um, and he said, I've spent months hacking into the phones of Brazil's most powerful people, including Judge Moro, the entire prosecutorial task force, and others. And I've downloaded a gigantic archive proving grave corruption on the part of the judge, on the part of that task force. And they talked about what they should do, and they agreed that they should contact me because of the work I had done with the Snowden archive would enable me to know how to do it. So she called me and said, she told me what happened and said, are you willing to talk to him? And I said, of course. And I began talking to him and within, I don't know, maybe an hour um, after I became convinced that he was serious, that he wasn't there to entrap me into a crime, um, he began uploading onto my phone, this enormous archive, one document after the next. And you know, every three seconds, a new document would materialize on my phone and it you know he said i think it'll take two days you know it went on for day after day after day after day eight days later it was still you know uh uploading nowhere and no end in sight and i realized this is a bigger archive than even the snowden archive which at the time had been the biggest leak in modern journalistic history so we ended up creating a kind of encrypted dropbox and i wanted to make sure the documents were secure outside of brazil because remember the primary target is Sergio Moro, who's now in charge of every component of domestic surveillance, electronic monitoring, law enforcement. So I was very concerned that he was going to detect or find out what was going on, given the magnitude of the leak. I wasn't certain how careful the source was being. And I was very concerned that they would be able to get a prior restraint order from any judge, given how dominant he was in the judiciary, preventing us from publishing. And so... 
The first priority was to secure a full copy in various parts around the world, which is the same strategy I used when I got the Snowden archive. And we began then researching it kind of even before that, kind of on the first day. The first day, I remember my colleague and I, a young Brazilian reporter, Victor Pugy, and I um, just began arbitrarily and randomly opening files. And we saw this archive that was five years worth of chats, secret chats, between Judge Morrow and the chief of the task force, the prosecutorial task force, they shouldn't have been talking at all, right? right. Because Sergio Morrow was the judge judging the charges that were being brought by these prosecutors. It's the same system as in the US where the judge is supposed to be equidistant between the parties, the prosecution and the defendants, not like in Spain or Italy where the judge is the investigator. So he was plotting the whole time. We saw the first day how to make sure that not just Lula, but also Lula, how the charges should be brought, how he would rule, how to make sure that it withstood appeal. He was ordering, you know, what kind of public campaign should be uh, implemented to prepare the public that Lula was going to prison. He was plotting with the prosecutors the entire time. And we saw conversations where they were saying that we know the case is weak. We need to keep it with you. It was just utter you know, flagrant fraud. And so pretty much from the first day, I knew this is going to be a, a archive that whatever else was in there was going to really shake the Bolsonaro government at its foundations. Yeah. So, uh, so how, you know, I mean, obviously, as you said, you know, you're very concerned, um, you know, for obvious reasons, you know, that uh, about uh, how, you know, like Moro as uh, as somebody who had this like uh, super justice minister in a position, uh, and uh, and was also you know like so damningly implicated in, in these leaks. You know, was uh, was going to react to this, uh, and when you you did start publishing things, I think you you know you put out three uh, three documents you know at once to just to sort of establish that no, there's really something here. And, you know, and so, so that uh, to make it harder for them to, you know, to try to, uh, to stop uh, future, uh, future releases. Uh, but there, there were uh, extensive attempts uh, to, uh, to, to use the, uh, the force of the, uh, the Brazilian legal system to uh, crack down to stop this process. Oh, yeah. I mean, we published, yeah, we published three articles um, and probably, I don't know, 40 documents on one day, the first day, along with an editor's note saying like, look, you know, we have this gigantic archive and we're going to be doing this for at least a year. This isn't going to stop. It was really kind of like, I thought about it as like a shock and awe campaign. You know, I really wanted to knock them back on their heels um, to make them be on the defensive. I didn't want to just start with a small story. Um, I wanted to show this is like, an archive that needed to be in the public eye. It was very similar to the strategy I did with Snowden as well. I published five articles the first five days, one after the next, just to keep the U.S. government on its heels. Um, and, you know, part of the reaction, the backlash at first was just the kind of, because remember, you have the Bolsonaro movement that was obviously powerful enough to elect this person who had been on the political fringes for decades, now joined at the hip was Sergio Moro's very powerful following as well. They were inextricably linked. So these two movements were tied together and, and they viewed each of them, this reporting as, as threatening to them. And so I was kind of the target of this, you know, amalgamated movement of Bolsonaro's 
hardcore right-wing followers and Sergio Moro's Law & Order authoritarian fans. And, you know, the first kind of thing that would happen was there were hashtag campaigns that were every day, I would say for two months, my name was at the top of, you know, Twitter's trending topics in Brazil, calling for my deportation, for my imprisonment, for my arrest. They started forging documents purporting to show that I had like paid Russian hackers in Bitcoins to do the hacking. Um, you know, but the most menacing part was was the official. Yeah, that's that's a, a chart that purports to show. You can see there it was a very convoluted uh, theory, conspiracy theory. But this was put on in a, one of the major news weeklies, like the Time or the the Newsweek of Brazil. And the theory was that I had been able to gain access to Telegram because Snowden was friends with the two Russian founders of Telegram, the two brothers. Um, and then at the same time I had wired, you can see there are $300,000 in Bitcoin to Russian hackers. It didn't even make sense if I had access to Telegram through the founders okay. why would I need to pay Russian hackers, but there was, that was the cover stories. And, and, you know, Bolsonaro's son brought it to the Senate when I had to, that was the cover that, that was showing the theory on the trail of Moro's hacker. Um, and so it was crazy. It was insane. You know, both Moro and I got called to testify before the joint uh, the committees of Congress where we testified each for nine hours the whole time I was being threatened with jail by Bolsonaro's allies. But it took them about a month. And after about a month of that kind of stuff, just like fake news constantly, we heard from friends in our lives who were being offered money to talk about our personal lives, to lie about us, stuff like that. Um, we got really deeply personal death threats, you know, not the kind that you get routinely if you're a public figure, like, I hope you die or you're going to get what's coming to you or watch your back. But like very like non-public information about our home address, about where our kids went to school and like deeply disturbed threats. So we had to, you know, have armed security and ride around in armored vehicles of the kind that would have saved Marielle had she been in one. Um, but it was really about a month later when they started their official retaliation so one of the agencies that reported to Judge Morrow was one that's supposed to track movements of politicians and their family members. And they leaked to the press that they had initiated a formal investigation into my finances. Remember, I've lived in Brazil 15 years by this point. I had never been the target of any investigation of any kind. Suddenly, a month after I do this reporting on Morrow, one of his agencies leaks that they're doing a formal investigation of my finances. And a center-left party, this kind of environmental green party, went to the Supreme Court and petitioned this court, put us up to the investigations on the grounds that it violated press freedoms. And the Supreme Court ruled in my favor, issued this stirring press freedom ruling, barring any investigations of me in connection with this reporting. So then about two weeks after that, they leaked to the press that they were investigating David on grounds that they thought that he might have committed financial fraud. Um you know, a bunch of public events that I appeared at had to be canceled because of death threats. At some, I had to speak like from an offshore boat and they shot fireworks at me and the crowd horizontally. That was me arriving, you know, by a little fisherman's boat um, to the <laughs> offshore boat that they made me speak on because that was the only way they could guarantee my privacy. Um, as people know, I got physically attacked once on the air by a right wing pro Bolsonaro uh, judge um, or journalist. Uh, this was this was actually the day before Lula was freed from prison by the Supreme Court because of our reporting. So they knew it was going to happen. Tensions were very very high. The right wing was in, was furious 
that we had gotten Lua freed from jail, and that was the result. Um, but you know, the most uh, kind of severe and extreme reaction was in January of 2020, about six months after the reporting began. The month earlier, this the federal police, which reported to Sergio Moro, concluded their investigation into the hacking. They identified who they said were the hackers. They arrested six people and accused them of being my source. Um, but they also concluded in a report they released to the public, a very long section about me, that they investigated every conceivable you know, word that I had said, every action they had taken, and that they could find no evidence of any kind that I ever got near the line of criminality. To the contrary, the federal police said I was always very cautious and professional in the exercise of my duties as a journalist. So we assumed, you know, Bolsonaro the whole time was threatening that I would be in prison. He kept saying, Glenn doesn't need to worry about deportation. He entered this fraudulent marriage with the congressman. They did a fraudulent adoption of two Brazilian kids. That means we can't deport him. That would, be some, that would be some really impressive uh, planning. Yeah. I mean, I married David in 2005 before I was even a journalist. So I would have had to have been so prescient that 15 years later, I would need a shield against deportation. And also, why would I adopt two kids since being married to a Brazilian national is its own absolute shield against deportation, but it's Bolsonaro. So he's just throwing stuff out about our family. Yeah, it, it, it's also it's also kind of funny, right? Because because I you know because Bolsonaro you know and, and his supporters have also also said all sorts of really ugly homophobic things about you, you know. So it's like, well, wait a second, you know, like like are are you you know is is it a fake marriage? Like you know, is, are are you pretending to be married to a man? You know, like yeah. what, what, uh, what's the accusation here? Yeah, I mean, obviously the point of like bringing in, you know, I remember really well. He, he was at a press conference when he because Sergio Moro issued this really bizarre decree giving himself the right to summarily deport any non-citizen for any reason in a way that wasn't appealable. And everyone perceived that it was directed at me. That, I mean, that was the assumption. And they asked Bolsonaro about it a day or so later. And that was when he said, look, Glenn doesn't need to be worried, doesn't need to be worried about being deported. He's married to a Brazilian man. They adopted two Brazilian boys. You know, it was like very deliberate to stoke this, you know, a big part of his campaign was that gay men were attempting to take over the schools in order to recruit children to become gay using this thing called a gay kit, you know, kind of triggering the primal instinct of parents to protect children from pedophiles. It's a very religious country, uh, evangelical and Catholic. He rode to the presidency in part on the kind of anti, he was an expert at doing that. And that was the, really the point, but he did threaten me with prison. He said, he doesn't need to worry about deportation, but there's a good chance I'll be spending a lot of time behind bars here in Brazil. And so once the federal police, you know, issued this report exonerating me, we figured that was the end of the, that threat. And then the next month I was on vacation with my family, scrolling through my phone while I was getting ready to ride a horse with my son. And I saw, you know, breaking, urgent, Glenn Greenwald, criminally charged. Um, that was the tweet that I saw the first one. Uh, so it's the uh, MPF is the Ministry of Public. Uh, the MPF is like the Justice Department equivalent. Um, denounces Glenn Greenwald and six other people, which were the hackers, for the um, hacking invasion. Um, and I was, you know, I didn't know what to make of that. It seems pretty clear, but I thought maybe I just misread it. Maybe, you know, and then I started seeing every news outlet instantly reporting it. Um, and I was, I was charged criminally by these pro more prosecutors 
um, inside a federal ministry of prosecutors, which is the MPF, um, as being part of a conspiracy with my six sources. And so every crime that they were alleged to have committed was being imputed to me. So I was charged with, I think it was like 123 felony counts that had a total of 320 years in prison or something like that. Um, and that was obviously unpleasant um, because you don't know, you know, what courts are capable of doing. Remember, these courts have been very deferential uh, tomorrow the whole time. They sent Lula da Silva to prison. So, you know, I'm thinking like, look, if they can send Lula to prison, they can certainly send me to prison. Right. Um, and, um, you know, I knew I hadn't done anything criminal. I knew I hadn't done anything wrong, but it was still very alarming. Um, and it took about a month. And this right wing judge who got the case, we were very worried about that, wrote an opinion saying I'm, I'm he accept, in Brazil, the way it works is unlike in the U.S. where the Justice Department indicts when you're a defendant in the in Brazil, when they bring charges against you, the court has to accept it. It's usually just like a formality. They just accept the charges and then decide if you're guilty. But in this case, uh, the, we, we, we filed a petition asking the judge not to accept it. And the judge said, essentially, I think there is evidence that he committed crimes. I would be willing to accept these charges against him. And in fact, I would even order him preventatively imprisoned, meaning imprisoned pending trial, given what a danger he has proven to be but I'm forced by this Supreme Court ruling that was issued the year before in response to Bolsonaro and Moro's threats to dismiss the case because they have prohibited him from being investigated or charged. And the judge invited the Supreme Court. They said He said, I think it's probably a good idea if that order is reviewed to determine whether it's still valid in light of this new evidence. Um, so he made very clear he wished he could have accepted that against me. Um, but he couldn't because his hands were tied by the Supreme Court. Now, whether he really would have is hard to say. It obviously created a huge international uh, repercussions. You know, every media outlet in the West condemned that. Every, you know, presidential candidate in the Democratic field, like Bernie and Elizabeth Warren and Tulsi Gabbard and others, condemned it and defended me. Even like Fox News was defending me, which has a big impact, a footprint with the Bolsonaro movement. Press freedom groups, the UN. So whether the judge really would have had the courage to do it, I don't know, but he said he would have absent that Supreme Court ruling. So the charges are now formally dismissed, but the prosecutors are appealing that dismissal. So it's currently within appellate court. They're asking the appellate court to reinstate those charges against me. But given how vindicated the reporting has been, which I assume we're going to talk about next, um, yeah. you know, I think it's very unlikely that that will happen. Yeah, well, let's uh, let's 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 talk about that. I mean, like, how has um, you know, like, like, what's the uh, you know, how has this played out? You know, since uh, since it was uh, since it was originally uh, you know reported, like, like in the last, I guess we're coming up close to uh, two years. Right. So, in you know, we started the. I think the first reports were published on June 9th. About three months later, three and a half months later, in October, the Supreme Court ordered Lula released from prison. So he was in prison for about 18 months. He was in this like makeshift prison in Curitiba, which was the town where Sergio Moro was a judge um, and where his defendants were imprisoned. I had interviewed him from that prison. And the Supreme Court, when they freed him from prison, used the technicality to do so. It wasn't that we showed that Moro was corrupt. 
they said that under the constitution, as long as you have appeals pending that you haven't exhausted, you can't be ordered into prison. But the reality was the only reason the Supreme Court could let Lula walk out of prison was because our reporting by that point had so damaged Moro's reputation that people were already starting to doubt whether Lula's conviction was in fact just. Now institutions were willing to stand up tomorrow. He suffered a whole bunch of defeats in Congress as well. The whole kind of climate and framework in Brazil had shifted within months after the reporting. Polls showed that his approval rating was, you know, collapsing. Um, but that didn't really exonerate Lula. That just said he can't be in prison pending appeal. They didn't touch the convictions themselves. And then about six weeks ago now, I guess, um, a judge on the Supreme Court who has always been known as being very pro-Moro, very pro-car wash investigation, on his own issued a ruling that the case that convicted Lula should never have been with Judge Morrow in the first place because he never really had jurisdiction. And that was part of our reporting. That was one of our first stories that they knew, as I mentioned, that the case shouldn't have been with Judge Morrow. So I think the video clip that which you one? played at the beginning, go ahead. Yeah, yeah I was just going to say, which is which is a point worth underlining, you know, because, yeah, that video clip at the beginning, they sort of say, well, he's free to technicality. Uh, but the technicality is more than a technicality because 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 what you know because it's you know like this is part of this like scandalous behavior that uh that it was uh that they made sure that it was illegitimately uh put under moro uh because uh he was collaborating closely with the prosecutors and shaping their strategy and was in no way shape or form a neutral party and they were afraid of having it be judged by somebody who actually might be well, so it, it kind of happened in two steps. So this headline that you're seeing was the second step. I think what happened was the video you played at, at you know, it happened very recently. So it's understandable. The video that you played, I think, was only after that first ruling that was technically a technicality, right? right. We're not saying Lula was innocent. We're not saying Judge Morrow did anything wrong. We're just saying that the case never should have been with Judge Morrow in the first place. Right. And the reason this judge ruled that was because, like I said, he's a very pro-Moro, anti-Lula judge. He was afraid that because Lula had petitioned the full Supreme Court to rule on the merits that our reporting proved that Moro was corrupt, that Moro was unjust and, and, and partial the entire time, and therefore the conviction should be nullified. And this judge, fearing that he Lula was going to win, jumped in and tried to just kind of avert a ruling by saying, oh, just on this te jurisdictional technicality, it should go to another judge. And what that could have done was the other that other judge could have just said, I looked at everything and I uphold the conviction. And the Supreme Court, the full Supreme Court, knowing that that was happening, said, no, we're going to finally get to the root of the matter, which is, was Judge Morrow actually corrupt and biased the way this reporting showed in his conduct of the trial? In other words, are we going to, annul the conviction, nullify the convictions of Lula. And so about a week or two after that one judge did that technicality that I think your video clip at the beginning was referencing, they ruled that yes, Judge Morrow himself was corrupt, that he was biased, and that therefore Lula's convictions are invalidated in full. And what that means is that Lula's political rights, which were deprived when he was convicted, are now fully restored, which means that he's free 
to run for the presidency in 2022 against Bolsonaro, which everyone now expects him to do. Right. Uh, so at the uh, at the same uh, same time as uh, as all of this has uh, has happened, you know, like the the Bolsonaro government itself, you know, has been like, uh, you know, making, as I understand it, you know, uh, some uh, you know some f- sending some fairly creepy signals, right? Like they uh, they commemorated the uh, the anniversary of the uh, the military coup in the 1960s as a revolution. Yeah. Yeah, they heralded it. They heralded it as a revolution against tyranny, which was, you know, the reason it's so creepy is because that was the original justification for the coup, and it basically had been outlawed. It basically has been illegal since redemocratization to talk about that coup that way in a positive or favorable way. And Bolsonaro has filled his government, including his vice president, but now almost every cabinet minister, with generals. So it's basically, you know, a more militarized government. And even the military dictatorship itself, which, you know, was led by the military, but would hire civilian experts to run policy. Bolsonaro just has militarized the entire government. Yeah, uh, which which I, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm curious about how, you know, worried that that makes you about, you know, what they uh, they might do, you know, now that uh, now that Lula you know, is in a position to, uh, you know, to, to, to run again, you know, that, and especially, you know, given that, uh, that these, these people are uh, openly, you know, praise, you know, pray, you know, ha- have this history you were talking about earlier of openly praising and having these links, you know, to uh, these, these right-wing, you know, paramilitary street gangs. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, th- I mean, and, and, you know, as I indicated earlier, for example, Dilma's impeachment, these recordings showed were, were, was was done in conjunction with the military. The military is sort of like a deep state, right? It, it kind of nothing happens of any significance without their buy-in. Um, and when the Supreme Court, before our reporting three years ago, was scheduled to rule on whether Lula should be imprisoned, the military, these generals, issued these very menacing statements saying all citizens are keeping an eye on the Supreme Court, and we expect you know, laws, the law to be applied to, you know, making clear that they wanted Lula in jail and the Supreme Court sent him there. Um, And clearly, you know, they were on the side of Bolsonaro. And there's still a faction of the military that is, you know, very extremist, doesn't believe in democracy, who are, who's on Bolsonaro's side. But I think what has happened is, and it's, you know, very hard to say, but, you know, Brazilian democracy is now 35 years old which means you have a lot of senior members of the military who were born into democracy or at least came of age in democracy. And they've been, you know, had it indoctrinated in their heads that their role is to be an apolitical military there to protect the constitution and democracy. And a lot of them believe that, you know, I think the military, there's a lot of good people in the military um, who I think are genuinely committed to that democratic model and to protecting it. And one of the things I think that our reporting has done more than anything was, you know, for me, the big question when Bolsonaro got elected, and even when we set out to do the reporting, you know, I knew that the Brazilian constitution guaranteed more robust press freedoms than the U.S. constitution does. I knew the law says that if you're a journalist and you receive information from a source that was illegally obtained, you can't be prosecuted. But I didn't know, no one did, whether institutions in the you know, Brazilian institutions have the ability or the the will to stand up to Bolsonaro the way we saw U.S. institutions doing with Trump. You know, the media got adversarial. 
the citizens protested, you know, members of Congress investigated and impeached. We weren't sure if Brazilian institutions, much younger, more fragile, beaten by financial crises and corruption, were able to do that. And I think the reporting kind of emboldened people that, no, we actually value democracy no matter where we are on the political spectrum. And so I do think Bolsonaro's plan is not so much a kind of classic military coup if he loses. What he's really trying to do is uh, his primary project now is to eliminate all gun control and to flood the population with weapons. And I think their model is very much to take what they look at and mock with mockery as this January 6th protest at the Capitol. They mock it. They're like, that was pathetic. Yeah, right. like, yeah. They, they, they're like, that's what we want to do, but like for real, right? right? So I don't think the danger so much is that the military as a whole is going to do a coup in Bolsonaro's favor, but I could easily see some kind of conflict between armed factions of the police you know, the population and, you know, factions within the military fighting on Bolsonaro's behalf or in favor of democracy. And obviously Bolsonaro's script is going to be Trump's script. Even before 2018, when he was stabbed on the campaign trail from his hospital bed, he had already said, there's no way I can lose this election unless the Workers' Party commits fraud. Right. And there's no possibility that if he loses, he's going to say, yeah, I lost fair and square. He's right. going to try and incite his now very armed followers who are fanatical to use violence to prevent him from being taken out of power. And that is a dangerous and volatile situation. No one knows what the outcome will be, but it's certainly something that's on everybody's minds. Yeah. So on on the subject of that comparison uh, between Bolsonaro and Trump, I know our producer Forrest wanted to ask you about um, some of, um, uh, you know, Bolsonaro's, um, you know, COVID response, which 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 has been like, uh, you know, almost uh, almost uniquely bad. Uh, Forrest, do you have that uh, supercut? Bolsonaro strongly opposes any restrictive measures. We won't accept measures that force us to stay home. The COVID-19 virus has come to stay, as others have in the past. Watch poverty rise and stop people from working and eating. If you do not want to be treated, you have the right not to be treated. I decide, for example, not to do chemotherapy, and I decide to die. It's my problem. And we in the federal government have already informed that once the vaccines are approved by the health regulation agency, the vaccine will be offered to everyone. But those who don't want to take it do not have to. I will not take it. Some people say I'm setting a bad example. They say I'm an idiot. I've already had the virus. I have antibodies. Why take the vaccine again? Marcelo Quiroga making headlines as he becomes the fourth new health minister in Brazil in the past year. The respected cardiologist has recognized the importance of social distancing measures, a different discourse to that of President Bolsonaro. Então esse impacto desses óbitos que estão aí, nós conseguiremos reduzir com dois pontos principais. Primeiro, com políticas de distanciamento social própria, que permita diminuir a circulação do vírus. 
segundo com uma melhora na capacidade assistencial dos nossos serviços hospitalares. The 55-year-old is replacing Eduardo Pazuello, seen here on the right, an army general who had no prior medical experience. The change comes as Brazil experiences its worst week since the beginning of the pandemic. On Wednesday, more than 90,000 COVID-19 new infections were recorded in 24 hours, a new single-day record. Que nós estamos vendo agora são pacientes chegando numa numa velocidade que nós não conseguimos. Porque como a gente sempre soube, o tempo de permanência desses doentes é muito longo. E agora eles ficam nas UTIs e não há vagas para os que chegam. In Rio, many fear that despite a change in health minister, the government's widely criticized policy will remain the same. Eu acredito que Pode se mudar, mas também é uma questão muito complicada, porque o nosso atual presidente, que é o Jair Bolsonaro, ele tem a visão dele, tem as medidas que ele quer tomar. The government has also been criticized for its slow vaccine rollout. So far, less than 5% of the country has received a first dose. And he said, uh, he said the last the last health minister was a general, which kind of underlines what you were saying earlier about um Bolsonaro only appointing pretty much like generals and, and military personnel to his uh, to his cabinet. Yeah, you know, I think I'm glad so glad you 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 played that because, you know, with Ben asking me about Bolsonaro's future, this is the crucial part, you know. Brazil is like the U.S. and other advanced democracies and that you cannot be president if you have made complete enemies out of the most powerful factions which are the military and big business. And so that was one of the reasons why it was so important for Bolsonaro to bring Moro on board was to assure kind of bourgeois society that he was going to, you know, be upstanding and, and all that. But the bigger thing that he did, the more important thing that he did was before the campaign, before the election, he got this guy, Paulo Geddes, who's kind of one of these classical university of Chicago trained, um, economist who believes in privatizing everything and austerity, whose model is Pinochet in Chile to be his economics guru. when he promised to not only make Gettys his economics minister, but he said, I'm, I'm not going to have anything to do with the economy. I don't know anything about it. I'm giving it all to Paulo Getty is going to run it. And I can't tell you how many kind of educated Brazilians, you know, embarrassed by Bolsonaro and his rhetoric would say, I'm not voting for Bolsonaro. I'm voting for Paulo Getty's. So the idea, you know, was we can accept Bolsonaro as long as big business is protected. And what has happened is his management and his movement are so demented and so deranged that the country is in such shambles. You know, the variant is the most dangerous variant in Brazil. It's all over Brazil. And therefore, most commercial partners, trading partners have completely closed their borders to Brazil. So it's destroyed trade. A lot of the like, pygmies in Bolsonaro's movement copy the right, the American right. You know, they love Steve Bannon. Um, they, you know, listen to Newsmax and follow like Paul Joseph Watson and Alex Jones and those kind of people. Um, so they're obsessed with like demonizing China. But the problem is China is by far Brazil's most important trading partner. And obviously China could destroy the Brazilian economy without noticing. And so you have Bolsonaro's sons running around, like calling it the Chinese virus, thinking that they're like the U.S. And then China goes to like 
impose punishment because that's what China does. And then, you know, the business class freaks out. And then the vice president has to come out and say, Bolsonaro's son is an idiot. He doesn't speak for us. But that's what's been going on. And now with the COVID crisis, it's hard to put into words what it has done to this country and still is doing to this country. It's just getting worse. Unlike in the US and other Western countries are kind of getting under control with the combination treatments and vaccines. It's spiraling out of control here more than ever. You know, I don't like, I almost don't know anybody in the US who hasn't gotten the vaccine by now. I don't know. I almost don't know anybody in Brazil who has. I think they're up to like down to like 74 years old. And it's very, very slow. And the problem is because of the inequality, you know, if like you're wealthy, you have access to private hospitals, which are like state of the heart hospitals, but state of the art hospitals. But if you're poor, even before the pandemic, you did not want to go to a public hospital. It was very common to hear people would go to public hospitals, poor people, which is most of the population. They'd go to the waiting room with a heart attack or a stroke. They wouldn't be seen for like seven hours and they would just die in the waiting room. That's before the pandemic. Now you have, yeah, now you have, you know, almost every city in Brazil at full capacity or in excess People are dying in ambulances, are dying in waiting rooms from COVID um, because of Bolsonaro's mismanagement. And so, so many of the powerful sectors that had been crucial to at least allowing him to win have are now abandoning him because they, and they know they can't afford another four years of this kind of mismanagement and international pariah status. The question is, again, though, whether violence will be enough to at least cause something other than a peaceful transition of power. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in a lot of ways, you know, like something you say at the beginning of the book is that, you know, people call Bolsonaro, you know, the Trump of the tropics, you know, but, but really he's much worse. Uh, and, uh, and I mean, it, it's like, you know, I always think about like the thing that uh, Matt Taibbi said, you know, uh, back in January, you know, when some people were talking about, you know, Trump doing a coup. And you said, look, it's not like I think that Trump would morally object to having a coup. Right. Right. It's that, like two minutes into planning it out with his generals, he would get bored and like wander into the other room to like watch TV in his bathrobe. Uh, and, you know, whereas like, um, you know, in, uh, in, in Bolsonaro's case, it's like all of the sort of most uh, demented impulses of the worst parts of, uh, of the Trump movement, like, but, uh, much more like serious and intense and, you know, and, and much less erratic and flaky about it. And with a real history of like, you know, military coups, unlike us who, you know, we do them everywhere else, but like, we don't have a model with that. Right. Or I, I think like for me, the way I try to think about it is why would any sector of us elite society want some kind of radical change to the governing system of the United States. They're doing very, very, very well with it. They do do soft coups. I mean, if the CIA views somebody as a threat to their power, they will be more than happy to interfere in domestic politics. Wall Street, the same thing. Power centers, the same thing. But it's not like there are substantial sectors of American power petrified of a Joe Biden administration who would be willing to you know, incur immense upheaval to keep Donald Trump in office. Right. And that was, you know, exactly. I mean, that was, of course, I, it's not, not only, you know, do I think that Trump um, lacks the, you know, the, the concentration, I'm sure he would love to do a coup, but even if he did have the kind of attention span that he doesn't have, 
I just don't think he would ever get the support. What, who, who, in whose interest would it be for Trump to do that? And you know, the United States is the most powerful militarized country in history. Look at what they're doing to those 800 boomers who went to the Capitol. They're the full force of the Justice Department and the criminal justice system is crashing down on their heads um, because US elites don't tolerate threats to the prevailing order, um, you know, from the left or from the right. And that was why I never thought that was a, a, a real threat, not because Trump's right. above it, right. not because there aren't people who want it, who follow him, but because right. the power center in the U.S. wouldn't allow it. And I do have more faith now in the Brazilian in Brazilian institutions than I did, say, two years ago when Bolsonaro was elected. But, you know, as, as Forrester said, when you have a very recent history of this kind of violence and street violence and, you know, political instability, you can't write it off that that something like that could happen. Bolsonaro has basically been preparing his whole life for that moment. Unlike Trump, who you know thought about it, you know, a month earlier, like I can't lose. What am I going to do? I'm just going to deny that I lost. This has been Bolsonaro's ideological project for his whole adult life. He's a true believer with a large dose of religious fanaticism mixed into it, which obviously Trump lacks as well that I think makes him very willing to kind of go the full distance and in order to try. It's also that the, I think, I mean, I don't know what you think about this, but the fact that uh, Bolsonaro's party and like the far right movement barely have a hold on power in the sense of like, they're, they're a young party. They just got this majority. It, it seems like it's a much more desperate situation than the Republican party who know they can kind of just wait out a Joe Biden presidency. And it's almost like they don't need Trump because like now, you know, people are running as like MAGA candidates right now in the U S like, I don't need Trump. They, they just need Trump to say, oh, I approve of this person or I don't approve of this person. Like they don't need Trump to actually be in office for that. Yeah, I think it's a good point. You know, people comfort themselves sometimes with the fact that Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro has lost a lot of support. You know, like if you look at what that movement was like, you know, I was talking about this earlier when he first got inaugurated, he had a bunch of different center right and right wing factions united behind him, including Sergio Moro. One of the things we didn't mention was, you know, in, in 2020, in April of 2020, Moro quit the government um, and on his way out accused Bolsonaro of all kinds of grave crimes, saying that he was corrupt, that he was interfering in police investigations aimed at his children. Um, and then Moro became like the prime enemy of the Bolsonaro movement. Ironically, he replaced me in that spot to the point where Bolsonaro Bolsonaroistas actually cite my reporting to prove that Moro was corrupt. It's kind of bizarre. <laughs> but this happened over and over. Like huge layers have peeled off the Bolsonaro movement, which in a way is good because they have fewer numbers. But that nub that remains is the like most radical and unhinged. And therefore, in some sense, the smaller that movement gets, the more cornered they get, like a corner right. rat, the more desperate they become, the more extremist they become. And I think you're absolutely right. There's a very good observation that they know that their one chance to hold on to power is now with Bolsonaro occupying the presidency. They're very unlikely. Just It was a weird convergence of events. Brazil is not a right-wing country. It was just the right moment at the right time for Bolsonaro to win. It's very unlikely for that to happen again. And they know that. And I don't think they're going to, you know, release their grip on power easily or voluntarily. What do you think that um, the, I guess, Haddad losing... Um in like in 2018, like, what do you, what do you attribute that to? I guess just not name recognition and the fact that he wasn't Lula or, um, 
Yeah, you know, um, one of the one of the difficulties for the Brazilian left is that Lula was always the unifying figure. Every you know everything revolved around Lula. That's how the left governed. And once they broke up the Workers Party, really since Dilma's impeachment, the left in Brazil has been completely lost, weak, divided, tons of infighting, unsure of what their political program ought to be. Different parties sounds, now sounds familiar. Sounds very yeah, familiar. It, exactly. Just standard left-wing <laughs> behavior. It's kind of like once you took Tito out of Yugoslavia, the whole thing just collapsed. All that unity was gone, and you know the civil war began. And so, you know, on some level, I think people believe that if Lula runs again, the kind of you know, it's kind of like um, you know they're talking about the way in the U U.S. like a kind of pro-democracy front. Like you have Bolsonaro and then just everyone who's not Bolsonaro and everyone's going to unite behind Lula. I think that's a huge pipe dream. There's very deep anti-Lula sentiment and anti-Workers Party sentiment still. And the fear is that seeing a week in Bolsonaro and believing that the country doesn't want to go back to Lula, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to want to, who think that this is our moment to run, who are going to go for that center lane. And you can easily see the left fracturing behind multiple candidates and then sending Bolsonaro to the runoff against some hideous center-right, you know, neoliberal or austerity kind of figure. Yeah, like Brazil, Brazil Joe Biden or something. Yeah, like almost like a kind of Joe Biden versus, or like, you know, imagine if you had like Trump versus Jeb Bush, right? right. That would kind of be the choice. <laughs> um, so I, I, I think, I hope the left gets its act together. Um, I I, I think they will unite behind Lula, but you know, Lula is a much weakened figure compared to what he was in 2010. People saw him go to prison, you know, and a lot of people believe he's guilty of corruption. Um, and he's been out of power for, for you know, 11 years, 74 years old. Um, so whether he, re I mean, he shows a lot of energy in these recent interviews. You're like, wow, that's like the Lula from, you know, 2005, um, but you know, it just, it's so many Brazilian politics is so complicated that you really are dumb to bet on anything more than 48 hours ahead. Yeah, fair enough. Well, uh, the fact, uh, that, that he has, uh, that, you know, that Lula does, you know, does have some kind of fighting chance now, uh, to, uh, to regain the, uh, the presidency, uh, you know, is to uh, to a remarkable extent due to your reporting, and it's uh, the the book you know describing it is uh, is riveting. So, uh, people should uh, should check that out. And uh, thank you so much, Glenn. Yeah, guys, thanks so much. Really appreciate you taking so much time to talk about a country that deserves a lot more attention than it gets. So, I really appreciate it. All right, thanks. All right, that was Glenn Greenwald, as uh, the uh, the author of uh, "Securing Democracy: uh, My Fight for Press Freedom and Justice in uh, Bolsonaro's uh, Brazil." Uh, before uh, before we go, I just um, you know just wanted to uh, to say uh, you know a couple things. Uh, so one is that there is a whole uh, different uh, different discussion uh, to have about, uh, you know, about, you know, Glenn and U.S. politics. If you want to know what we, you know, think about that, you know, uh, the, the, you know, the positive stuff, the criticisms, you could see us doing a half hour conversation about this. 
uh, <laughs> a, uh, a little while ago. Uh, Ironically, uh, also the book kind of puts it in context of, uh, you know, the crackdown of the Obama administration on the Snowden leaks and why um, Glenn might trust certain people in media, like why Glenn might want to stick to certain people in, in, you know, popular media more than other people or trust some people more than other people because of, you know, it, it's all based on like who, who's reported what, you know what I mean? Like about his, um, I don't know who, who's cracked down on what, because the far right is obviously cracking down on Brazil, but you know, the democratic party, the mainstream of it, like the establishment democratic party has done a, a much, uh, much more damage cracking down on this reporting um, under the Obama yeah. Sure. And and again, you know, there's this this stuff, this stuff in that critique, especially of Obama, that I agree with. There's this stuff about how he approaches some of you know the alignments to US politics that I disagree with. You can see us do a deep dive there, but I just wanted to note that. Uh the other thing I want to to I wanted to just kind of say, you know, before we uh we close out is uh is that uh the uh that I think that, you know, I could imagine somebody watching, you know, some of this and, you know, and, and, and sort of saying, well, look, uh, you know, you, you guys said earlier in the interview, you know, that, uh, that, you know, that Lula, you know, wasn't actually, you know, that far left and in, in the way that he's, he's governing, you know, Brazil, you know, so, uh, you know, so why do you guys love him so much? Right. You know, uh, going back to uh, even before this show existed, uh, you know, TNBS to some of the, you know, some of the writing that I was doing and I was doing with Michael, you know, for, uh, for Jacobin. And, uh, and I, I wanted to, to just say, and then after I say this, let's, let's play the, um, uh, let's play that last Lula clip and, uh, and close out. But, uh, but I, I just wanted to say that I think that like, I get where that, you know, that might come from, right? Like, uh, but I think that especially as, you know, the American left, you know, like that's just not how we should be thinking about this stuff, right? Because uh, because what the political possibilities are uh, for, you know, left-wing and popular and working-class forces in a country like Brazil is to a very great extent dependent on what happens here. Uh, yeah. That's, like, like they're not, they're not operating in a vacuum, you know, they are operating within uh, the world's dominant, you know, imperial hegemon that can do whatever the fuck it wants. Uh, mm -hmm. They are operating uh, under circumstances that are severely circumscribed uh, by the American empire, by the IMF, you know, by all of these, uh, by all of these institutions uh, that are of course, you know, closely allied with this, this domestic, you know, uh, right-wing oligarchy that's just vicious and brutal and is uh, is willing to uh is willing to do um you know to like really go to war to stop some like pretty mild social democratic stuff uh from uh, from happening and so if we want there to be more radical socialist possibilities in countries like brazil uh you know like that's that's on us right you know we gotta uh, we gotta defang the uh, the empire here if we want that to happen it's also really important to note how deep, you know, the American meddling in other countries and the American, because some of the, what the, the leaks show is that, you know, how closely um, the Lava Jato team and Sergio Moro were working with people in America, like U.S. government officials, to really push, uh, to push Lula out and to leak things about Venezuela um, that, you know, would, would help inspire a coup in Venezuela. Like all of these other things are connected. They're all connected. So I think, you know, knowing all of that and, and knowing what, you know, uh, the American empire has to atone for 
at some point, if there is going to be a real leftist project is crucially important. Yeah. Um, so I think that yeah. there's like currents through a lot of different things. And I hope we can talk about this in more detail when, when we come back. Um, you know, no, uh, we, will, we will most certainly talk about this in more detail when we, uh, when we come back from, uh, from break, uh, you know, we're, we're going to be, uh, you know, we're going to be doing a lot more, uh, a lot more Brazil content. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll do, you know, we'll do a deeper, you know, deeper dive on some of this then, you know, I, I just, I just think that it's, you know, like, it's very easy, you know, to, to talk. Uh, well, actually I could almost end the sentence there. It's very easy to talk, right. You know, yeah. like to go, to go on a podcast uh, in, uh, in the United States, you know, in, in, in relative comfort and security. Uh, and and, and uh, things in, in 2020, like hindsight is 2020, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, uh, yeah. Like, and, like, and, yeah. And critique the compromises that people are, you know, making elsewhere, uh, under circumstances, you know, uh, you know, from within a box that they didn't create, uh, you know, but the people who, uh, who did create that box are, you know, and I don't want to exaggerate because, you know, the historical picture here is complicated. The relationship of forces is complicated. The, uh, the Brazilian oligarchy, you know, would be deadly all on its own. Uh, but, uh, but the, I mean, look, that, that original military coup, you know, was, was the baby of the, uh, the Johnson administration, uh, that, uh, that, you know, which is was our last real liberal administration, which is, you know, like reading the Jakarta method and how, like how, how much Johnson did like damage while kind of doing, you know, like, like somewhat decent social programs, um, or at least trying to failing on a lot of accounts, yeah. but at least trying to do somewhat decent, yeah, yeah. you know, the last time that anybody, really, that. yeah. yeah. And but then also around the world, he did caustic fucking damage, like yeah, on right. Every Which, continent. Because, <laughs> because empire is bipartisan, uh, yeah, and so, so it doesn't really matter, you know, that much. I mean, it matters around the edges, and I don't want to like minimize that because the edges, you know, are where people live or die. But uh, sometimes, but uh, but you know, whether you have, you know, the Johnson or Nixon in power, or for that matter, whether you have Obama. Or Trump in power, uh, in broad outlines, you know, somebody like Trump's going to be a lot more like weird and erratic about it. But uh, in broad outlines, you know, U.S. policy is uh, is going to uh, to be very very similar, you know, regardless of of which of these, you know, which of these partisan machines is is in power. You know, which is not to say that you know it should be a matter of indifference to us you know, which one is, but that part, unfortunately, is going to be very similar. And so, you know, what we, you know, what we need to do is to, uh, to build up a, uh, a left that can, that can really neutralize a lot of that, uh, a lot of that American meddling in, in other countries, especially in Latin America, and that ultimately can, can take power and, and be a sympathetic, you know, force for, for left forces uh, elsewhere. And look, and look at how fast, you know, Trump winning and, you know, uh, like the UK having a far right moment with Brexit, like all of these things, it, it starts a wave. You know what I mean? So, so the left winning somewhere can start a wave and inspire left movements across the world. So, I think it's important to highlight where those movements can, you know, come from, too. Yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, that happened in a wave. It's 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 uh, it's still possible, you know, to imagine. I mean, uh, you know, waves in uh, in the other direction. I mean, obviously, the the haunting what if for a long time is going to be if uh, uh, if Labour had won the last election in the UK, and you know, and uh, and and Bernie 
you know, had, had pulled it out, you know, in the, uh, in the primary here, but uh, none of this shit is over. Uh, even if we've lost a lot of bad battles and that's the larger perspective uh, that you have to take. And I can't think of a better way of ending the episode than watching this clip. Eu quero saber quantos dias eles vão pensar que estão me prendendo e quanto mais dias eles me deixarem lá, mais Lula vai nascer nesse país e mais gente vai querer brigar nesse país. Porque a democracia, a democracia não tem limite, não tem hora para gente brigar. Por isso eu estou fazendo uma coisa muito consciente, mas muito consciente. Eu falei para os companheiros, se dependesse da minha vontade, eu não iria, mas eu vou. Eu vou porque eles vão dizer a partir da manhã que o Lula está foragido, que o Lula está escondido. Não, eu não estou escondido, eu vou lá na barba deles, para eles saberem que eu não tenho medo, para eles saberem que eu não vou correr e para eles saberem que eu vou provar a minha inocência. Eu vou terminar com uma frase que eu peguei em 1982 numa menina de 10 anos em Catanduva, que eu não sei quem é. E essa frase não tem autor. A frase dizia, os poderosos podem matar uma, duas ou três rosas, mas jamais conseguirão deter a chegada da primavera. E a nossa luta é em busca da primavera.